friends, let us now listen to Brother Mel Caparos, pastor of Living Word Christian Churches of Cebu International. go to Matthew 5 verse 20. This is the verse for today. Could we please rise from our seats right now? So at the count of three, let's all read together aloud, please. One, two, read. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you and bless you, Lord, for this wonderful morning. Thank you, O God, for allowing your people to just worship you and glorify your holy name. So many things are happening around the world, things that are disturbing. But Lord, our hearts are still and at peace. We are calm in the midst of all these trials and adversities because we know that you are seated on your throne. There is never a situation that is out of control because you, our God, are always sovereign and your providential dealings will continue to preserve your people. And we trust you for that, O God. And so this morning, once again, we pray that we might hear from you. Speak to our hearts, O God. Minister to us in a very special way. I pray for the Holy Spirit Lord, to move in a mighty way, opening our eyes, opening our minds, opening our hearts. Lord, we submit ourselves to you, knowing that you know what is best for us. I pray for myself, Lord, that you might give me the thoughts that I need to speak out, give me clarity of mind, and give me boldness in my speech, O God, so that I can declare your word unhindered, O Father. And whatever is going to be achieved today, we will give you back the glory, the praises, and the thanks. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen and amen. Let's be seated in the presence of the Lord. I've entitled this uh, morning sermon, The Stamp of Approval. Now, this sermon answers the question, who is worthy to enter God's kingdom and go to heaven? Now, I know that for some people, it does not seem to be a relevant question, most especially for those who are young, those who are healthy, those who are strong, and those who are successful. They think that this question is not really relevant. They'd rather be focused on this earthly life. They'd rather be focused on their earthly ambitions and aspirations. And so they think that When it comes to matters that deal with eternity, it's something that we don't need to talk about, at least not right now. But you know, there are certain events that have taken place worldwide which are really quite disturbing, and it's really alarming. Of course, we have the the coronavirus, which has spread not only in China, but the rest of the world. And even our nation right now is under threat Uh, with that virus. Many people are scared. I was actually looking at a uh, Facebook post 
when I was in Manila or in Baguio City, and I discovered that there was a big line, there was a, a long queue, uh, because a lot of people were, were buying a mask. And uh, again, there was so much panic. And then I saw a video uh, of a grocery or a department store in, in Singapore, and all the supplies basically had run out already because people were stocking up. They were afraid that there might be a lockdown, and so they're scared about the situation. Now, there are other things that have disturbed us. The locust plague, of course, in, in Africa. The locust plague just very recently in Pakistan. The bat attacks taking place in Australia. Of course, the bushfires and, and many other things. The volcanic eruptions. And so, all of a sudden, people are now beginning to be aware of these conditions. And we begin to realize how fragile our lives are. So fragile, in fact, that we don't know when God would take us home. Up until today, people are still talking about Kobe Bryant, uh, who was removed from the scene. I mean, it was something that shocked all of us because at the age of 41, we're thinking that he still has his whole life ahead of him and he has still many aspirations he still has many ambitions. He still has many plans for his life. And then his daughter, uh, 13 years old, died as well. So friends, whether you like it or not, the question, who will enter God's kingdom, is obviously something that is relevant. It is relevant for you and I because we don't know when God will take us home. Now. Every year, we celebrate our birthday. We need to realize that we are drawing closer to our death day. Let me repeat that once again. Every day, we are celebrating our birthday. We are drawing close to our death day. And then, whether we like it or not, this question which I propounded to you a while ago is something that we will have to answer. And if we do not attempt to answer this question, we will regret it for the rest of eternity. Now, today, I'd like to give you a verse of Scripture. Actually, this verse is really so packed with so much truth. You will be surprised we're just going to handle one verse, but this verse just gives us so much truth, which I would like to unpack to you uh, later on. But first of all, let's go to a little outline which uh, will somehow show to us where we're going when it comes to this sermon. So here we go. So here's the sermon outline. Uh, first point would be the righteousness that is inadequate. Obviously, God has certain requirements, and He has a requirement when it comes to a righteousness that will bring you to heaven. So we're going to talk about it negatively, first of all. And what we will see is, first of all, the inadequacy of the Pharisees' righteousness, which happens to be, by the way, the gold standard of the Jews at that time. And I would probably even say the gold standard of the world at that time. And then we're going to talk about the inadequacy of all other righteousness, either less 
or equal to the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, obviously, we want to come up with a positive answer. As we started with the negative one, we will go to the positive. And so the second major point and the last one would be the righteousness that is adequate. So let's begin. Let's dive into our text and let's talk about, first of all, the righteousness that is inadequate. Allow me to read Matthew 5, verse 20 once again. It says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So herein we find the inadequacy of the Pharisees' righteousness, which I mentioned to you a while ago happened to be the gold standard. It was the, the mark that was to be beaten by all other forms of righteousness. Now Jesus begins his statement with this phrase. He goes, for I say to you, it is a phrase that, that Jesus uses in his authority as a king. Now, a lot of us, of course, know Jesus as Lord. We know him as Savior, but we need to remind ourselves he is not only Lord and Savior, he is likewise king. And his reign, of course, will obviously take place in uh, the millennium after the second coming. But it doesn't mean that his reign has not begun. His reign has begun most especially in the hearts of people. And so as a king, he is saying, I say unto you, and he is saying, this is something very important. As a king, it is God, it is Jesus Christ who determines who is approved and who will enter the kingdom. Probably just to make a paraphrase, to make this simpler, the paraphrase could be read this way. But a true believer's attitude is not the legalism of the scribes and the Pharisees, but a deeper commitment to the perfect will of God. Now allow me to give you a little background in regard to this uh, passage of Scripture because a lot of us don't know much about the Pharisees and the scribes and how powerful and influential they had become. Because if you go to the Old Testament, you don't find a group or a religious group called the Pharisees. And so we wonder where did these people come from? We also find the name uh, Sadducees. Where did they come from? So we need to do a little background study so that we could understand what Jesus was saying here. Now here's what happened. The children of Israel had ceased to know their Hebrew language when they were exiled in Babylon. Remember, they were exiled by God in Babylon as chastisement for their idolatry and for their sins. And so what happened was they spent 50 years uh, of their lives in that uh, place. And while they were exiled, they actually lost their Hebrew language. And so they began to speak Aramaic. Now, Aramaic is also a sister language of the Hebrew language, but, you know, it's, it's different. It's kind of different from the Hebrew language. So what had happened was only very few understood the Bible, the Old Testament Scriptures, because the Old Testament Scriptures were written in Hebrew. 
And since they were speaking in Aramaic, they could no longer make sense of it because it was written in Hebrew. So, here's what happened. The Pharisees, the religious elite of that time, as well as the scribes, understood and spoke the Hebrew language. Now, obviously, that made them powerful and very influential because only they could actually read and understand the Hebrew scriptures. Now, the problem was they also became interpreters of the scriptures. And the people, the masses, who did not understand the Hebrew language almost considered what uh, the Pharisees said, their interpretations, to be almost infallible. So everything they said, everything the Pharisees said, the masses, the masses of Jews accepted hook, line, and sinker. Now, obviously, this became a pitfall to which the Israelites fell because there was no way of checking whether the interpretations of the Pharisees were correct. And so they became quite powerful. And what was even more disturbing was that the Pharisees began to add, they began to supplement the scriptures with their own interpretations, with their own traditions, which later on became considered already part of the Bible. Again, it was not really, or it should not really have been part of the Old Testament scriptures, but then again, the masses began to accept that. Now, gradually, through the injection of externalism, useless rituals, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Old Testament was now divested of its real essence. Righteousness took mere appearances but had lost inner meaning. Their outward righteousness no longer had any internal basis because, again, they were basing their faith on the tradition of the Pharisees. Probably to give you an idea how this was playing out and how the conflict between Christ and the Pharisees took place, we need to take a look at one passage. And I'd like to bring you to Matthew 15. So kindly have a look at Matthew 15, verses 1 to 3, please. It says, Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he answered and said to them, this is the answer of Jesus Christ, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of God, or I'm sorry, the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition. So in this Sermon on the Mount, which is found in Matthew 5 all the way to chapter 7, Jesus is saying that this teaching was actually in complete harmony with the Old Testament scriptures. He had not misinterpreted the Bible. He had the correct and proper interpretation of the Old Testament. So who was wrong in this case? Obviously, it was the Pharisees and the scribes who made wrong interpretations of the Hebrew Old Testament scriptures. That was the problem that was seen at that time. The Pharisees and scribes were actually teaching things 
that were contrary to the letter and the spirit of the Old Testament. And here's what happened. The Pharisees were promoting a religion of externals instead of a religion of heart obedience. Now, very important for us to understand, Christianity is a heart religion. Could you say this, please, with me? Christianity is a heart religion. For after all, if we talk about the new covenant, what do we discover? Well, we have a description of the old covenant in Ezekiel chapter 36. And what it says there is that God will give us a new heart and He will give us a new spirit and He will replace our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. And then He will place the Holy Spirit upon us that we might obey His statutes and His commandments. So we're going to talk about the new covenant. It is a covenant wherein God has replaced our heart of stone. This is the reason why Christianity is a heart religion. It is not a ritualistic religion. It is not a religion basically composed of externals or plainly uh, talking about ceremonies. It is a heart religion. And this is something very important, brothers and sisters, because oftentimes, as I mentioned to you previously, we're very much concerned about activism. We're very much concerned about the spiritual facade that we have. We're very much concerned about what you and I see and what you and I hear and what you and I touch. But the truth of the matter is God is more concerned about our own hearts, the content of our hearts, the motives and the intentions of our hearts. God is more concerned about that. And so we are going to be judged by God, not only with the good deeds that we have performed, but we are going to be judged by God by what is inside our hearts. That is why we need to cultivate our inner life. This is basically what the Lord Jesus Christ meant when He said that we need to abide in Christ. We need to abide in Him at all times. Because the truth of the matter is that we are simply branches. And branches cannot produce anything. They cannot produce fruit because they, they cannot sustain themselves. The branches cannot sustain themselves. So where, where does the sustenance come from? It comes from the vine and the roots itself, the root system. Because that is where you get hydration, that is where you get the vitamins, that is where you get the minerals. So the moment the branch is cut off from the vine, it no longer has any life. And this is the reason why we have to cultivate the inner life. We need to guard our hearts, as the Bible says, because it is the wellspring of life. That's why, friends, we might be here physically, but it's possible to be spiritually and mentally absent. Now, God doesn't like that. God desires that we should be here, not only physically, but we should be here mentally, spiritually, and our heart should be into it. And so again, Christianity is a heart religion. Now, to be sure, the Pharisees looked righteous on the outside, but... They were spiritually dead on the inside. Religion for them had become 
a matter of obligation rather than a privilege. And just to lift uh, a little testimony from my own personal life, I recall my father was very religious, and uh, because of his religiosity, he would always tell the whole family that Sunday was sacred. Sunday, we had to be at church because it was our obligation to be in church. So Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, we were there. The whole family, my mom and my two other brothers, we were there. There, was, there came a time, however, that my mom probably got weary and tired of all the externals that she saw in church. And so finally, there was a time that she excused herself, and so she stopped attending church. Later on, my younger brother, Jess, all right, felt weary and tired as well with all the religiosity but no godliness. And so eventually, he too was no longer attending. So it was just me, my father, and my youngest brother. Soon, however, my youngest brother became tired of going to church. He also stopped going to church. So it was just me and my father. Later on, however, as I began to ponder about these things, I tried to find excuses so that I would no longer be able to attend together with my father. And true enough, I stopped attending as well. So it was just my father alone who was attending church. And then later on, he realized that this was all empty. We began to be acquainted with the scriptures. We began to be acquainted with genuine preaching and the genuine proclamation of God's word. And eventually, my father stopped attending church as well. And we started, the whole family started to join an evangelical Bible-believing church. But you know, most of our people are really in this kind of a state. They're going to church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, but their hearts are not into it. In fact, a lot of these people, a lot of Filipinos who are going to church, they prefer the back seats, right? And not only do they prefer the back seats, they prefer, you know, staying even outside the premises of the church for as long as they are within the environs of the church, they feel that they are in the presence of God and that they are right with God. But you and I know what's happening in those places. They're just chit-chatting. They're just talking with each other. They're not even paying attention to the sermon. It's really just merely externals. And again, God is not pleased with that. In fact, He chided many of the Pharisees in this Christ because they were honoring God simply with their lips. It was all about lip service, but there was no heart service. There was no heart obedience whatsoever. Of course, we would like to believe that we are on the right because we believe in the Scriptures, we believe in the proclamation of the Gospel, we believe in God's Word. But brethren, I'd just like to remind you it's not just a matter of having the right elements. It's not just a matter of having the external essentials. What is really important to God, most especially, is the situation of our hearts. 
And this is something that God will evaluate time and time again. Now, when we go back to the text that we are studying, was Jesus saying that the Pharisees were bad? Was he saying that? Was he saying that they were wicked, perverse? No, actually, Jesus was not denying the fact that they were good, at least humanly good. Because in the eyes of the Jews of that time, they, they put the Pharisees on a high pedestal. And they, uh, they actually admired them. And why would you not admire them? They were fasting twice a week. They were tithing even the smallest of seeds. Can you imagine that? They were tithing the smallest of seeds. And then they were very generous when it came to giving to the temple. They were always there. And they would even make sure that they would be noticed. There would be trumpets that would be blown, heralding their generosity, their philanthropy. And so, yes, they were good in the eyes of men. Here's the problem. They were not good enough. They were not good enough. Even the gold standard of that time, the gold standard of righteousness, was not good enough for God. In other words, when judgment time comes, all of the righteousness that they have done would practically be worthless. They would still end up in hell. This is exactly what you and I see here. Now, what was wrong exactly with the righteousness of the Pharisees? I'd like to outline it for you at this time. First of all, the righteousness of the Pharisees was external. Again, God's main concern is the purity of the heart. We mentioned that a while ago. God is concerned about the purity of the heart. A lot of people can actually appear to be good and pure, but deep down inside, they could be filled with covetousness. They could be filled with pride. They could be filled with lust. They could be filled with materialism. They could be filled with hatred in their hearts. It's possible that all of these things occupy their hearts. And, and this is exactly what we see here. It's, an, it's a religion of externals. Secondly, ritual cannot substitute heart obedience. These people were very much into rituals. In fact, what was the thing that they were trying to contest with the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 15? They were saying that your disciples don't wash their hands. And by the way, up until today, washing is such a big deal among the Israelites, particularly the Orthodox Jews. If you go to the part where you have the Wailing Wall or the Western Wall right now, where you find many Jews praying, I mean, we've seen a lot of pictures of that. We've seen it on, on film clips. They actually have an area there where they have a faucet. And in that faucet, they would, they would fill it up with, with water. They would fill up these vessels with water, and they would start washing their hands. They would do that. They would keep on washing their hands. Now, during the time of the Lord Jesus Christ, they had this very big pool. It's called the Pool of Siloam. And what they did was before ascending to the Temple Mount, what they would do is they would actually bathe themselves in the pool. 
they would wash themselves. I mean, not just the hands, but the whole body. They would wash it. They would practically take a bath. And after taking a bath, they would now ascend the stairs and they would go up to the Temple Mount. That was how big a deal uh, ritual cleansing was or the washing was. And that's why, again, for them, this is what's important. And so they were chiding, the Pharisees were chiding the disciples of Jesus Christ. Why did they not wash their hands? Now, it's not because there was coronavirus that they were scared of these things. But again, it was all part of the rituals. And they were wondering, why aren't you doing it according to the tradition of the elders? And Jesus was pointing out to them that this is merely your own addition. You have supplemented the Bible with things that God himself has not required. You know, when we take a look at the Old Testament, it was already difficult enough. But the Pharisees and the scribes made it even more difficult. This is the reason why Jesus Christ said, those of you who are weary and tired, come to me, he says, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is light, it is easy. It is not burdensome. And why was he saying that? Because the Pharisees had laid on huge burdens upon the people. It was so difficult for them to carry. And that is why Jesus was saying, Come and enter into my rest. Receive me as Lord and Savior, and you will enter into my rest. And so they were interested. The Pharisees were interested in details, but not in the principles. And we find that even in our country, a lot of our people are, are very concerned about details. For example, you see the taxi drivers, when they drive and they pass through a church, what do they do? Sign of the cross. Every time they, they pass through a church building, sign of the cross. And then, mamalikas. They start cursing. They start, you know, cursing the other drivers. They curse the, the motorcycle that, that cuts them. So we, we find that in our own country. We find so much religiosity, but actually no godliness. It's all external. They were also, the Pharisees were also interested in actions rather than motives. And that is why they would put it on display for all the people to see. And they were more concerned about that. Not only was their religion external, it was also partial. Take a look at Matthew 23 verse 14, please. It says here, Woe to you! scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive greater condemnation. Now, let me ask you this question. Is there anything wrong with long prayers? Yes or no? No, there's nothing wrong with long prayers. But why was it that the Lord was, was rebuking them here? What was the problem? Well, the problem was not the long prayers. The problem was their hypocrisy. And by the way, the word hypocrite in the Greek actually literally means a play actor. So the whole thing was just an act. 
Their whole religiosity was just an act, but the reality was not on the inside. And here's the problem. It says, they were devouring the widow's houses. And the Lord Jesus Christ says, therefore, you will receive greater condemnation. So the religion was partial in the sense that there was selective obedience. And sometimes here's the problem, even with God's people. We choose to obey the things that for us are easy, the things that are for us convenient. For as long as our comfort zones are not touched, for as long as um, it does not inconvenience us, we're willing to obey the Lord. But when it comes to commandments that require dying to self, well, when it comes to commandments that make you choose between yourself and God, commandments that make you choose between somebody, somebody, a relationship, or God himself, we find it very difficult now to choose God and to die to ourselves. So the problem with the Pharisees and the Christ was that they were selective in their obedience. That cannot be. All of the commandments of God are supposed to be obeyed. They're supposed to be followed. And the problem with the Pharisees was that they were selective and they justified themselves in the commandments that they did not follow. So once again, there was a problem, a big, big problem with their heart. Now also, they had redefined the Old Testament. As I mentioned to you, they added, they supplemented hundreds hundreds of laws. I mean, if you take a look at the book of Leviticus and the book of Deuteronomy, sometimes, you know, you, you can have, you can be lost in all of the details that are given in the Old Testament. But then again, they were not content with that. They even added more, making it more difficult for the Jews at that time. Another problem was that they were self-centered and focused on self-glory. So whenever they did something good or something fantastic, they would have a herald announce what they have done. As I mentioned to you, whenever they gave, they made sure there was a trumpet that was blown for people to see what they were doing. They were, they were making a public display of all the good deeds and the good works that they have done. They were not really seeking the glory of God, but they were seeking their own glory. That was the problem. Not only that, they were self-satisfied. They were content with their righteousness. They felt it was enough to bring them to heaven. Do you know they made this statement? They said, if only two people go to heaven, one will be a scribe and the other a Pharisee. Let me repeat it once again. If only two people go to heaven, one would be a scribe and the other one would be a Pharisee. Now here's the problem. Even with all the arrogance and boastfulness and pride that they had in relation to their own righteousness, thinking that because they were children of Abraham, they would go to heaven, Jesus was saying, that's not enough. So let's talk about the inadequacy of all other righteousness, less or equal to the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, if the gold standard for righteousness among men was the righteousness of the scribe and the Pharisees, and yet in the eyes of God it fails, then all other forms of righteousness will fail the standard of God. 
I'd like you at this point in time to think of the most righteous person you've encountered in your life. Try to think about it. In my mind, I, I, know, I know somebody whom I think would probably be, to me, the most righteous person I've ever seen. And that would be my grandmother. My grandmother had, has always been kind. She's always been generous. She's always been loving. I've never heard her raise her voice. Never seen her angry, even one time. So that's in my mind. Try to think of that somebody whom you feel is the most righteous person you've ever encountered. Do you have somebody in mind already? I'm sure there must be somebody or you're thinking, well, I'm good. I cannot think of anybody. All right? Well, fine. Just imagine. <laughs> just imagine this most righteous person. I just like to say this. Even the most righteous person, even the person with the most sterling, excellent, noble kind of life, even that kind of righteousness will fail. Even that kind of righteousness will fail. Jesus is saying, you must exceed Him in righteousness. If this is the righteousness of this most moral person, you must exceed Him by far greater heights. So let's talk about what is the righteousness that is adequate to the Lord? The only standard that God will approve and bring one to God's kingdom is the righteousness that surpasses the ones of the Pharisees. That's why, once again, allow me to read once again our verse just to refresh our memory. Matthew 5, verse 20. This is what Jesus said. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So, the only righteousness that God will accept is the one that surpasses the one of the Pharisees. And it's already difficult to surpass. Well, let me ask you this question. Is there anyone here who fasts twice a week? Is there anyone here who, who eats every day? Now, that's easy, right? Anyone who fasts twice a week? Nobody. Is there anyone here who, who tithes so faithfully that even the smallest of seeds, you actually do tithe? Some of us, I would suppose, are not even tithing at all. How much more tithing the smallest of seeds? But they were doing that. They were generous. They were generous. They were, uh, they were into a lot of good works. They were into philanthropy. How many of us could actually surpass the Pharisees' righteousness? Not many of us, maybe none at all, would be able to surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees. By the way, the word surpasses in the Greek is quite interesting. It is used of a river that is overflowing, similar to what I explained to you when I 
explained uh, what happens during the flood season in the Jordan River. All the water coming from the mountains. By the way, they don't have trees in the desert. All the mountain goes down all the way into the River Jordan. That is why it reaches a tremendous height. It is a raging torrent that is impossible. And that is why, again, this is, this is what Jesus was picturing. The kind of righteousness that is accepted must be like a river overflowing its banks, emphasizing that which is far in excess of the normal. Now, when we talk about a river that is overflowing, a righteousness that is like a river that is overflowing, how does that look like? How does that look like? Well, obviously, we need to see how it pans out, how it's played out in somebody's life. And we don't have to guess, actually, because it is found beginning at verse 21 all the way to verse 47. Now, I'm not going to let you read that because that's too long. But if you're asking what is the kind of righteousness that God requires, it's found in verse 21 to verse 47. So I'm going to give you a homework. The kind of righteousness that God requires is found in those verses. When you go home, read it. And so, question, of course, would be, well, Pastor Mel, make it simple for us. Can you summarize it for us? What is this kind of righteousness? Well, we don't have, I don't have to summarize it for you. Jesus summarized it. He summarized verses 21 to 47 in verse 48. So, Matthew 5 Verse 48 is the summary of that righteousness. So here we go. Are you ready? Fasten your seatbelts. This is the righteousness that God requires. Matthew 5, verse 48. Therefore, you are to be perfect. Did you hear that? Say perfect. Say perfect. It says, therefore, you are to be perfect. How perfect? You ask. Gets more difficult. It says, therefore, you are to be perfect as your what? As your heavenly Father is perfect. That is what the Lord Jesus meant when he spoke about a surpassing kind of righteousness. It's not just any kind of righteousness. It's not just any kind of good deed that we do. It's not just any good work that we do. The kind of righteousness that God requires is a perfect righteousness. And it's not perfect the way we define it. It is a kind of perfection that the Heavenly Father Himself possesses. Now, here's my question for you. How many of us are as perfect as the Heavenly Father? Raise your hands, please. We will crucify you. Because there's nobody who can ever reach that height that perfection of the Heavenly Father. We're not talking here about human perfection. In fact, there is no such thing as human perfection. And more so, there is nothing, there is no human being who could reach the perfection of the Heavenly Father Himself. But unfortunately for us, that is the righteousness that God requires. Unfortunately for us, that is the righteousness that will bring you to heaven. So, what do we conclude? 
Woe is me, for I will never, ever be able to go to heaven. Woe is me, for if justice were to be played out, my own, the only place I could be in is in Gehenna, the lake of fire. I do not have any hope whatsoever to enter the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Because if what he requires of me is perfection and the perfection that the heavenly father possesses, then it is impossible for me as a human being to enter heaven. Now here's the thing. What does God want from us? In response to that truth what God wants is humility of heart what God wants is an acknowledgement what God wants is a bowed head that says God I am totally absolutely unworthy I am totally absolutely undeserving I cannot attain to that righteousness you have to be able to admit that you have to be able to acknowledge that that humanly speaking it is impossible for you to be saved that is why by the way brothers and sisters good works will not do good works will not save and here's the unfortunate thing in our own country a lot of our people are trying to save themselves by good works and the problem with that is this they will never be able to attain to the standard of god the standard of perfection the standard of the heavenly father himself who will be able to attain to that nobody let me just use a very simple illustration how many here have good leaping ability? Raise your hands, please. Wala asad. Well, let's just use an example. Let's just say, as an old man, I can jump from this spot all the way maybe to this spot. That's what my 58-year-old niece could possibly give to me. I can jump from this spot to this spot but maybe somebody younger could probably leap a little longer than myself so probably from here he could probably jump all the way here and then maybe somebody even better somebody who's really athletic somebody athletic could probably jump from that spot all the way to here wow and then maybe somebody even better with with a superior body superior legs can actually jump from there all the way to this spot and we say wow but how many here with great leaping ability with great strong legs could actually jump from this spot all the way to Bohol <laughs> is there anybody who can do that I'm just using that as an illustration a lot of people are trying to save themselves and they're jumping towards their salvation but they're only reaching to this point others are just reaching to this point others are just reaching to this point others are just reaching to this point but nobody is able to reach the standard of God so again that's the reason why our good works cannot do 
Our good works will not save us. This is the reason why in Isaiah it says, Our righteousness is nothing but filthy rags in the sight of God. We fail to understand that the standard we're talking about here is not our own standard. It's not the standard of our own neighbor. It's not the standard of, of religious people. The standard that, that we are talking about here is the standard of God. And nobody, and nobody can attain to that standard. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The word sin comes from the Greek word hamartia, which means missing the mark. Just try to imagine, you know, a, uh, um, what do you call this, archery. If I, if I can hit the bull's eye, then, then I'd hit the target. But if I stretch my bow and arrow and I, I let it fly and it doesn't hit the bull's eye, I've missed the mark. And what is, what is the statement of God regarding all of mankind? We have all missed the mark. Everybody, without exception. So, I agree completely with what John MacArthur says in relation to this. He says, Christ sets an unattainable standard. This sums up what the law itself demanded. Though this standard is impossible to meet, God could not lower it without compromising His own perfection. He who is perfect cannot set an imperfect standard of righteousness so that's the problem you see if God will condescend to our level and say if God will say that if God will condescend to our level and allow us to achieve what we can possibly achieve then he will no longer be holy he will no longer be perfect he will no longer be righteous if God lowers His high and lofty standard and makes it and makes our standard His standard, He will no longer be holy. This is the reason why He cannot compromise His standard. This is the reason why He still has to require perfection. The kind of righteousness that God approves is perfect righteousness. And let me ask you this question. Who has this perfect righteousness. Among the people who have lived for the thousands of years that earth has existed, who among the billions of people who have existed on this earth have lived a perfect, obedient life? Was it Moses? Nah, he committed murder. Was it David? No. David committed adultery and murder as well. Was it Noah? Well, not Noah, because right after the flood, he got so drunk. What about, what about Jacob? Jacob, no. He was a supplanter. He was a swindler. He was a manipulator. Well, what about Father Abraham? Maybe, maybe he's a righteous and obedient one. No, he was a liar. In fact, to preserve himself, he asked his wife, Sarah, to lie 
He was willing to, to give up his own wife to other men just so he could save his own life. So who is the one who is most righteous? Who is the one who has lived a perfect life? And you should know the answer. Who is the one who lived a perfect life? Jesus Christ and Jesus alone. Amen? Jesus Christ and Jesus alone. And that's why, let me just give you some verses which point to his perfect obedience. Philippians 2 verse 8. It says, Philippians 2 verse 8, Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming what? Obedient. How obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Some of us fail to understand how humiliating this was. And not only humiliating, death on the cross for Jesus Christ meant that the fellowship, intimacy, communion that he had with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit would be lost at that moment in time when he was nailed to the cross and died. That's why he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8, it says, although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And then in Hebrews 5, verse 9, it says here, and having been made what? What does it say? Having been made what? Perfect. Say perfect. Say it louder, please. Say it loudest, please. Having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. So if salvation were a matter of obedience and good works, listen well, this is very important. If salvation were only a matter of obedience and perfect righteousness, guess who would be saved? Only Jesus would be saved. Only Jesus would be saved. As John MacArthur said, scriptures teaches repeatedly that sinners are capable of nothing but a flawed and imperfect righteousness. But praise be to God, Christ's perfect life, Christ's perfection could be yours and mine. Amen? Christ's perfection could be yours and mine. And how does this, how does this happen? If we accept Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior. Now, is that true, Pastor Mel, that I could have Jesus' perfect life, that I could have His perfect righteousness so that my name could be written in the book of life? Can the obedience of Christ actually save my soul? The answer is yes, yes, a million times yes. Look at this verse of Scripture. Have a look at Romans 5, verse 19, please. Romans 5, verse 19. It says, For as through one man's disobedience. Now, who was this one man who was disobedient? It was Adam. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. All right? 
So if, you're, if ever you're wondering, where did I get this from? Well, you got it from Adam, all right? And so how do we solve that? Let's go on. It says, even so, listen well, even so, through the obedience of the one. This is referring to whom? Even through the obedience of Jesus, the many will be made what? Will be made righteous. How righteous? More righteous than the Pharisees and the scribes. How righteous? So righteous that when God sees us, He sees you and I as perfect. Amen? This is our spiritual state, brothers and sisters. When God looks at us, He does not see our sinful us. When God the Father looks at us, He sees the perfection of His own beloved Son, Jesus Christ. Amen? That, that is what the cross has accomplished for us. The cross has accomplished for us what you and I could not accomplish by ourselves. I'd just like to point out to you Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14, to answer the question, how is it possible that Christ's obedience and righteousness can be mine? Because I'm sure that's the question you have in your mind. How can it be mine? Well, the answer is found in Hebrews 10, verse 14. Could you go there, please? Listen up. This is so important and so mind-blowing. For by one offering, how many offerings? One offering. Where did that offering happen? In Calvary, at the cross. Just one. Not two, not three, not four, not a thousand, not a million. Just one offering. For by one offering, he has what? Say it out loud, please. I didn't hear you. Say it loudest, please. He has what? Perfected for how long? For all time. Say for all time. Say for all time. For all time. For all time. You are perfect. Did you get that? It's not your perfection. It's not your righteousness. It's not your good works. It's the good work of Jesus Christ. It is His obedience. It is His righteousness. It is His perfection that you and I have received. And through His one offering, the Bible says, He has perfected you for all time. This is the reason why I always say this, that when Christ forgives you, not only was your past sins forgiven, not only, were your, not only are your present sins forgiven, but even your future sins have been forgiven. Now we know it doesn't feel like we're perfect. Amen? Most especially if you just had a fight with your wife. Or most especially when you as a child probably, you know, shouted at your father. Doesn't feel like you're perfect. Doesn't feel like you're perfect when, 
when, a, when another driver cuts you and, and you stare at him with, with killer eyes. Doesn't feel like you're perfect. Doesn't feel like you're perfect when, when you're hurting inside, when somebody offended you. Doesn't feel like you're perfect. Sure, we need to understand we are not perfect possessionally. Take note of the spelling. We are not perfect possessionally because we're still being sanctified, but positionally, positionally, we have been made perfect. And that is why our names are written in the book of life. Amen. Hallelujah. This is the reason why our names are written in the book of life. What a blessing that is to know that I do not need to rest on my good works. Because the truth of the matter is if I am resting on my good works, I would be weary, I would be tired, I would be exhausted. And even with all the tiredness, exhaustion, wearisomeness that I would have, it will still not bring me to heaven. This is what Jesus meant when he said, come to me. Come to me, all of you who are weary and tired, and I will give you rest. A lot of us, when we, when we hear that verse of Scripture, we think it's talking about rest from our problems. No, that's not what it's talking about. Jesus was talking about eternal rest, amen, in his very presence, amen. We don't have to be tired. We don't have to be exhausted. You know why? Because Jesus finished the work in Calvary. This is the reason why in Calvary, he said, it is what? It is what? It is what? It is finished. Amen. It's done. Amen. It's done. It's complete. So you do not, and if something is a perfect sacrifice, can you add to something that is already perfect? Yes or no? No, you can't add to anything that's perfect. So what do I do? I humble myself before Christ and I say, God, I'm such a terrible sinner. I've failed you. I stumble and fall continually. And Lord, I know if I were just to rely on myself, rely on my goodness, I have no hope. But Jesus, you did it all. You paid for my sins. And so Jesus, be my Lord and be my Savior. And Jesus will speak to you the same way he spoke to the thief on the cross when he said, today, today, you shall be with me in paradise. Amen? You shall be with me in paradise. The moment we accept Christ, a divine exchange takes place. Have a look at 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, please. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. It reads, He, referring to God the Father, God the Father made Him, Jesus Christ, okay, so I'm going to translate that in that way so that we could understand it better. God the Father made Jesus Christ, listen well, 
who knew no sin to be what? To be sin. Did you see that? God the Father made Jesus Christ who knew no sin to be sin. Now the big question is how did that happen? That Jesus became sin. That happened at the cross. All of our sins, think about all your sins. The past sins that you've committed, the sins that you committed today, and the sins that you will commit tomorrow, all of that was laid on Jesus Christ at the cross. That's how Jesus Christ became sin. He who knew no sin became sin. Why? Because of our sins. But it doesn't stop there. Here's the good news. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that, here's the purpose statement, here's the reason for the cross, so that we might become the what? The righteousness of God in Him, in Christ. The righteousness of God in Christ. Just, just say this, please. I am, listen, I am the righteousness of God. Now, just try to feel that. Let's do it again. I am the righteousness of God. Does it feel that way? Do you feel like you are the righteousness of God? No, I don't feel like I'm the righteousness of God. Most especially, as I mentioned to you, if you did something before you came to church. You never ever feel like you are the righteousness of God. So how did that happen? Notice, go back to the verse, and let's continue what it says. It says, so that we might become the righteousness of God in what? In Him. Who's the in Him here? In Christ. So you, listen well. You, and could you point to your neighbor at this time? You are the righteousness of God in Christ. Amen. You are the righteousness of God in Christ. So what happened at the cross was a divine exchange. Jesus took your sin, and in exchange, you took the righteousness of Christ and made it yours when you accepted Him as Lord and Savior. So here's what happens. When the Father looks at you, He doesn't see you. He sees Jesus in you. Amen? He sees Jesus in you. Give the Lord a big, big hand, please. Praise God. That is God's stamp of approval, which marks, which marks Jesus Christ. And praise God that He imputes that righteousness, that perfection upon those who place their trust in Christ. I'd like to end with one verse, Romans 10, verse 11. I'd like all of us to recite this at the count of three. One, two, read. 
For the scripture says, I'm not hearing it. Is it on the screen? It's not on the screen. Anyway, just repeat after me. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Will not be disappointed. Will not be disappointed. Are you disappointed? No, I'm not disappointed. Amen. Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Amen. Say this with me. I am not disappointed. Say it louder. I am not disappointed. Say it again. I am not disappointed. Give the Lord a big, big hand. Amen. Hallelujah. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes at this time. I hope that I was clear enough to be understood that only Jesus Christ can save our souls. And I'm aware that there are some people here right now, you have never made that, that full surrender to Christ. Remember, salvation is a free gift. It's not something you earn. It's not something you pay for. It's not something that you sweat out. But you must surrender your life. You must put your life in the hands of Christ and say, Lord, starting today, I'm yours. And unless you do that, He cannot save your soul. He cannot, he cannot save a life that is not given to Him. Now, what about repentance? Repentance comes from the Greek word metanoia. It's a change of mind. It's, it doesn't mean I will change myself because, again, that would be good works. Metanoia, repentance, change of mind means this. Lord, on my own, I cannot change myself. But I surrender my whole life to you. And I allow the Holy Spirit to change me into the kind of person that you want me to be. That is what repentance is. It's not you changing yourself. It's Jesus, the Holy Spirit, changing you. But the big question, of course, is do you want to change? Do you want to put your life in the hands of Christ? Because in the, in the hands of Christ, you'll be made perfect. In the hands of Christ, you will be given His own righteousness. Not your righteousness, His righteousness. That will cause your name to be written in the book of life. So if that is your desire, while every head is bowed, every eye is closed, just to provide expression for the faith that is probably there already in your heart, I'd like to lead you in prayer. Again, listen well. It's not the prayer in itself that saves you. It's faith and repentance. I'm simply giving you a vehicle to express what's inside your heart. So right now, with every head bowed, every eye closed, could you just raise your hand, right hand, if you want to accept Christ as Lord and Savior. Yes, brother. Amen. Anyone else? Yes, sister. Yes, brother. Yes, brother. Yes, sister. Yes, sister. Yes, brother. Amen. Yes, Yes, brothers and sisters, amen.
Amen. Many hands being lifted up. Yes, brother. Yes, sister. Amen. I see those hands in the back as well. Amen. And further down, yes, I see those hands. Praise the Lord for this harvest of souls. Could you put down your hands, please, right now? And let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, I am sorry for all my sins. And I repent of it. And Lord, I acknowledge humbly that if I were to rely on myself and my good works, I would definitely, definitely fail big time. I have no hope if I were to rely on myself. But thanks be to God, you did the work I could not do. You died in my place. You became my substitute. And Lord, now you offer me your own righteousness. You offer me your own perfection. And how can I reject that? How can I reject that which will bring me to heaven? I know I'm undeserving. I know I'm not worthy. Lord, I receive this gift. I'm a beggar before you, Lord. A mendicant before you. But thank you, Lord, that you will not cast out those who draw near to you. So thank you, Lord, for welcoming me into your kingdom. I receive the free gift of eternal life in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Praise the Lord. Praise God. The Bible says that even with one sinner that repents, the whole of heaven rejoices. And today, we are the harvest of souls. Let's give the Lord a big, big hand, please. Praise God. Let's come before the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you and praise you for today. We thank you, Lord, that your word came out powerfully. And we thank you, Lord, that your word never returns to you null and void. It always accomplishes the purpose by which you have sent it for. So we thank you, dear God. Thank you, dear Lord, for our salvation. And we cannot thank you enough. Because, Lord, out of the billions of people in the world who have lived and existed here on earth, you have chosen us and called us, and you brought us into repentance and faith. And now we enjoy the fruit of salvation. So thank you, dear Lord. Allow us to serve you more and love you more. Allow us, Lord, to be passionate for souls as well bringing glory and praise to your holy name. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to give our tithes, our grace gifts, and our offerings. Use them, Lord, as we desire to partner with you in the work of the kingdom and the harvest of souls. Lord, again, to you be all the glory, the praises, and the thanks. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen and amen. Let's give the Lord a big hand, please. Praise the Lord.